always hard conversations. One of my favorite hard conversations really isn't one in which many of us probably have experienced, but it's the hard conversation that Lewis and Clark had to face with their followers and with their people as they began to move across the country. Lewis and Clark uh, were explorers, and and they really were sent out by the president and by the government to to go and to make new ground, to go and and map out the United States so that we knew what was out there. And, And most importantly, what they were commanded to do was what? Find the Pacific Ocean, which they thought was just a mere few months of travel away. But as they took to the ground, they found out the trail looked nothing like what they thought. In fact, everything they encountered was an obstacle, and there was hard conversation after hard conversation after hard conversation that happened on this trail. Eventually, they get to this place, they cross over some mountains, they walk through some fields, and they meet up with the Shoshone tribe, and and they're sitting there, and they see the Missouri River, and for a second, they just dip down in, they touch the cold water, they reflect in their journal about how cold it is, and they splash it on their face, and they're finally feeling relieved, like, oh my word, we've lost people, we've had to wrestle some bears, Um, we've fallen sick to disease, Uh, we didn't know that the rest of America didn't really look like the East Coast, we've gotten kind of over our heads in this thing, but now we're finally there, I'm sure the Pacific Ocean is there, I mean, We expect this to take like two months. It's taken a year and a half. We're here, the Missouri River. I don't know what this is, but it's got to be fed by the Pacific Ocean. So we're almost there. We'll just got to go over those little mountains and canoe down. We'll be fine. So they meet with the Shoshone tribe, and the Shoshone tribe says, I don't know what the ocean is. In fact, I know that there's stories of some great body of water, but you still got to go a long way. And there's these mountains, or, you know, they call them hills. There's these, these hills. And so uh, Lewis and Clark, in their experience, what they knew of hills were like West Virginia, which almost killed them. So uh, they had no idea what lay ahead of them yet. Now, can you imagine that conversation as you've already lost some people, you've already fought off disease, for this dream of finding the Pacific Ocean, and you find you're not even halfway across the country yet? That'd be a hard conversation to have. As part of my studies with Fuller, there's been a book that was recommended reading for us, and I encourage you to check it out. It's called Canoeing the Mountains. Canoeing the Mountains. And it's a, it's a book by Todd Bosliner, and he looks at the journey of Lewis and Clark, which I have always enjoyed. In fact, I own their journals. Uh, and, and have read them many times. Uh, he says that in many ways, the church is facing hard conversations today in the world in which we live. And as a result, uh, we don't know how to handle them well. And so we turn to inward fighting. Because we know that when we're facing hard conversations, the best thing to do is wrestle the things that we can control. He says... Altogether, there are almost 1,500 pastors every month leaving the ministry as a result. He said, now the details are as different as the pastors themselves, but the common thread is that they finally got worn down by trying to bring church to a church that was stuck and did not know what to do. They saw that their churches were stuck and declining, stuck and clinging to the past, stuck and lurching to what quick fixes they could, 
trying to find an easy answer for what clearly bigger challenges, or we might say harder conversations. What all these churches had in common is they eventually began to blame the church and each other and the pastor for how bad it felt to be stuck in these hard conversations. They began to say, if you could only preach better, or if you would only give more pastoral care, if only our worship was more dynamic, pastor, please do something. Isn't that what we pay you for? He begins to look at the story of Lewis and Clark and compare it to the era in which the church is in. This story that the world was in some hard conversations and they thought if we could just gain this new ground, if we just send these two guys out and find the Pacific Ocean, it's going to fix trade, it's going to fix the way we turn to each other. As some of us that are fighting, like the Irish and everyone else, we get to send them out there or something because we'll all be a healthier country with all the hard conversations we're facing if we can just get Lewis and Clark to uh, map out the U.S. for us. Lewis and Clark's expedition to explore the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase, right, that's what the whole rest of the U.S. is called, was built completely on a false expectation. They believed, like everyone before them, that the unexplored West was exactly the same geography that was familiar to the East. This is the story of what they did and discovered that they and everyone else before them actually had been wrong. And how instructive, inspiring their story can be for us today. This is an incredible book that follows the story of Lewis and Clark in a way that applies to us in the hard conversations we're in. And the author offers five steps to approaching hard conversations in the church. First, understand each era is an uncharted territory. The world before you is nothing like the world behind you. That's incredible to think about, right? Uh, but it's incredible because that's a reflection of Lewis and Clark. Everything we're seeing is nothing like we just experienced. What is this? And, you know, you guys call this a hill? You know, everything was uncharted. Secondly, develop an on-the-map skill set. Nobody is going to be willing to follow you into uncharted territory or off the map unless you guys can build trust together. Third, in leading off the map, it's important to realize that in uncharted territory, in hard conversations, adaptation is everything. You don't go forward if you keep saying, that's not the way it was before. Next they say, this, by studying Lewis and Clark, we learned that relationships and resistance, you can't go alone, right? They needed other people. In fact, they have to pick up, uh, I can never say her name right, but come on, someone help me out, Sacagawea, Right? They have to pick her up to show them the way because these two experts who have explored everywhere else all of a sudden had no idea what was coming. You can't go alone, but you haven't succeeded until you deal with the sabotage. Now, one of the most interesting parts about Lewis and Clark is after they leave the Missouri River and they keep going forward, uh, people start to get pretty upset about this trip. All of a sudden, it didn't look so fun anymore. This hard conversation, you know, he told us, just stick with this a little bit longer. He probably had some pep rally, right? Just stick with this a little bit longer. Things are going to get better. Things didn't get better. In fact, they considerably got worse and worse. Their people dwindled less and less. And so he says, you can't go forward until you've survived the sabotage. And fifth, in hard conversations or in uh, changing times, we realize that there needs to be transformation, and that is that everyone will be changed in these situations. 
leaders included. Folks, we've been in this series for four weeks, studying hard conversations and how we can engage them in healthy ways. This is our fifth and final week of the series, and I think Lewis and Clark have a lot to offer us and what it means to lead into hard conversations which really often feel like uncharted territory. There's been a free devotional booklet available in the lobby uh, to kind of help our weeks correspond with our Sunday morning study. I think they are all gone now, or at least almost all gone. But if you're interested in this, I do have digital versions for Kindles and those of you who enjoy reading on tablets. Each week of this series, we've looked at an affirmation each week that kind of uh, help us learn how to have a healthy posture to the church and to the hard conversations. We've looked at some early hard conversations that the church had to wrestle with from their experiences, and we've taken these affirmations from their experiences so that we can have a healthier approach. We've made those affirmations because, listen to this, this is important for me. I believe that this series should help us as the church and as followers of Jesus lead the way in our world with hard conversations. The church has not looked as a pioneer in hard conversations. But I believe that if we understand these postures we've been talking about, we should lead the way with hard conversations. We all know that our culture is continually struggling to find unity and coherence in a world that is deeply divided. Not only does this Uh, mean for us that often it affects us, but we should remember that our history, both as a movement, both as a church, uh, has a lot to teach us about how to mature in our ability to handle hard conversations, to actually to lead the way, because we also follow Jesus, and Jesus had some really unique ways and approaches to hard conversations. As followers of Jesus, let's show what life can look like When God's people find ways to, now listen, go deeper, to love hard, and to work longer for unity than anyone else around us. So far in our series, we've named four affirmations. Just as a way of review and conclusion to our series, let's read through them. God has all truth, but we confess that we do not have a perfect understanding of it. We only see through a reflection in our brokenness, our experiences, our lenses. We only see a bit and a piece of it. And we must realize that when we're fighting for rightness. Our affirmation, too, is being loving is as important as being right. Isn't it more important to be right? And that is loving because you're telling people to be right. It's important that we understand the and of this. It's important to be loving and right. The Holy Spirit, we looked at in in week three, is that it can create unity in situations and in hard conversations where it once seemed impossible. We find our identity in Christ, was what we looked at last week, not in our right answers or our belief systems. There should be nothing that is shaping our identity outside of Christ. And it's that that we begin to look for in each other, and for the, in our discernment around right answers. So today we look at our fifth and final 
uh, affirmation for approaching hard conversations, and that is that we must choose to live in the tension of the already and the not yet. Or we might say, we must learn to be okay with the both and. Now, we'll unpack that in a little bit. Right now, you're like, what kind of affirmation is that? We're going to unpack that here in a minute. We're going to be reading John 4, 1 through 26, and I invite you to follow along with me or follow along the screen. In the middle of this story that we're about to pick up, Jesus himself is in the middle of a hard conversation. Like all hard conversations, it's full of tensions. There's this land called Samaria, there's this land called Judea, and there's this dirt road that connects the two. And to be fair, that road was the naturalist route, the easiest route between those two cities, but it was avoided with all passion. Because these two cities lived at deep tension with each other, they did not know how to engage each other or hard conversations, that road literally became a war zone. Now, do you ever avoid a route or a place because you might bump into somebody that you're in a hard conversation with? I don't want to go to that store. I might run into, you know, Jack. And Jack, you know, last time I saw him, that conversation didn't go well. So, right, you have those kind of situations. That's what this road was. Sometimes Sumerians would even hide and attack followers. So that's the funny part of when Jesus tells a story in Luke about the good Samaritan. And it's a Samaritan that rescues somebody. Because it was most likely also a Samaritan that hurt that person. It's like, well... You know, traveling this road is like how most of you probably travel the city. What's the first thing you do when you get in a city, you suburban nights? Why do you do that anyway? You guys are so fearful. But like, the, that's what this road, if there was cars, right, like, the minute they entered this road, we got to go to Samaria. <laughs> Kids, don't make eye contact with anyone. You know, that's what this road was like. These groups fought over who was the rightful descendant of Abraham. I'm writer. No, you're writer. And blah, 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 blah. They, as a result, then began to have these hard conversations that is certain who was more right. And what happened was even more hard conversations of theological differences, of historical differences, and of racial ethnicity differences. So skirmishes would break out over these hard conversations because they did not know how to engage each other. And often it would actually lead to bloodshed and murder. Thankfully, I don't think too many of our church disputes are happening like that right now. But in the history of church reformation era, there has been that kind of escalation. We have not handled these conversations well. In fact, Jesus not only travels this road in a story we're going to read, he's willing to stop at Jacob's well, which, by the way, is still standing there. And he drinks from the same vessel in which somebody he should be avoiding culturally is also drinking from. So think about somebody you're at odds with in a hard conversation and imagine yourself sharing a water with them. And I don't mean pouring it into a pitcher of each cup. I mean drinking it out of the same cup. Jesus decides to stop and drink from this water vessel, someone he culturally should avoid. And in, in addition to that, the woman he stops and shares that vessel with is the definition of shady lady. Right? Now, I know that we as followers of Jesus avoid places often that do not equal our values. We don't go in there because they serve this or they do this. 
And when we're walking in the street and we see somebody like this shady lady, what's the first thing we do? Come on, kids, we got to go to the other side of the street. Right? But that's not what Jesus does in the middle of this hard conversation. So pay attention to that. What I like about this story is Jesus models putting himself right in the middle of hard conversations. It's not only this hard conversation that's led to tension and despair, but it's a conversation that had begun to lead to injustice in their world. And Jesus doesn't remodel removing himself from this hard situation, but rather putting himself right in the middle of it, even though his disciples aren't with him because they were hungry and they went out to get pizza. And Jesus engages this hard conversation on his own. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Jealousy much? Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back to once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sitchkar, and near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and as I said, stills there. And Jesus tried as he was, he was tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. That was about noon when a Samaritan woman comes up and begins to draw some water. Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, for those of you that lived in the 50s and the 60s when racial reconciliation was really at its climax, this is like you as a Christian or as a Mennonite being willing to drink from the colored water fountain instead of the white one. Surrendering your privilege to get over there and be with the people that Jesus wants you to be with. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him if he would give you the living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She already knows that Jesus is setting up a theological debate. Are you greater than our father Jacob, she asked, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Because this is a pain. I mean, if you got that kind of water, I'm down. It's like the, all the infomercials we have, right? This is the product to beat all products you've ever had. That's Jesus' kind of setup here. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And that's the beginning of the debate there. And women, woman, Jesus replies, believe me, there is a time coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans uh, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. The argument of the 
Samarians, and in truth, the argument of the Jews. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now the woman, kind of wanting to avoid this conversation, says, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Like, I'm not getting involved in this debate with you. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now at the core of this passage, we see that Jesus is not choosing one people group over the other. He has uh, no intent to preach on which side is right and why they're right theologically. The salvation that he is bringing and speaking to does not belong to one people or ethnic group. In fact, what Jesus tells her is that the true and living God isn't contained geographically or architecturally. Rather, Jesus teaches her, yes, God is spirit, but not the kind of the disembodied and removed spirit that you uh, believe in and that your surrounding countries believe in who avoid the physical world. Um, but rather, God is a spirit who transcends the world and cares for even the most marginalized people, which is why I'm here with you. In that, Jesus invites the woman to himself. He reveals himself to her and professes to her that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. And those who follow him will not only worship him on this path, but also in the path of God's Spirit. Now, I don't want to take away from the meaning of this passage. That is a powerful reality. But I do want to analyze this morning how Jesus engaged this hard conversation. What we see is that this woman in this story kind of does what many of us try to do in a hard conversation is find a way to kind of just throw our hands up and be like, oh, God will take care of it. I can't worry about it. Uh, I'm just going to give it over. And if we're not careful, that becomes disrepair, despair. She says that. And she said, one day the Messiah will come, and why don't we just wait to then? I mean, he'll make it clear then. It's not getting into a debate, right? God is good, and, and we just kind of— Uh, superficially try to give up the argument. But Jesus doesn't allow her to get away with that. He puts himself right in the middle of this for a reason. Now, all hard conversations are full of tension. I could ask you to name your hard conversation. You could be like, well, me and my kids are debating this, or me and my coworkers are debating this, or I feel the church needs to discover this. And in all those hard conversations, what we see is each one of them is full of layers and layers of tension. It's always hard in a hard conversation to really find the root issue. No different in this story. First, the Pharisees are at tension because they believe that they're a little jealous that Jesus has more disciples than them. Then the Pharisees project their jealousy on Jesus, even though it's not him that was causing the trouble, the more disciples. It was his other disciples that were doing it. Then there's tension as Jesus is traveling alone because his disciples went for pizza, and alone in an era, he approaches a woman which was super taboo. Jesus is alone. His disciples are gone. He sees a woman. He should have walked to the other side. He engages her at the well. Not only is Jesus approaching her alone, but he's coming from a religious background that should not be associating with this woman. And if that's not enough, there is tension as Jesus confesses to her, I know that you're a shady lady. There is tension as Jesus has the uneasy job of confronting her sin. Now, how many of you have ever had to be in that kind of situation where you've 
how to call somebody into accountability. It's it's difficult. It weighs on you. There's even more tension when Jesus said and reveals, I'm God, right? Like, that brings up a whole nother tension. These are all magnified. We understand how different the Jews and the Samaritans were. This was more than just the differences in personalities and and kind of uh, preferences that you and I often find at the center of our hard conversations. These were night and day differences. Then there's this other deep tension in the passage, the tension of the kingdom's presence. And we find that in verse 23. Jesus says this. Now listen to this and try to picture what he's saying. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, if she wasn't already confused already about everything that Jesus was confronting her on, he totally messes up the timeline of reality. The time is coming, it is come. And then if we keep reading, by the way, uh, he goes, and as she goes into town, he sets up the idea uh, in the Greek that there's also aspects of the kingdom that are still yet to come. And so she's probably just sitting there like, you know, kind of just confused, dazed. What is he saying? Um, And in this statement, we find more tension than just time, but also this idea that worshipers will value worshiping the Father both in spirit and in truth. What Jesus gave her was a both-and statement. Now, you and I often don't like both-and statements because they can feel a little wishy. In an era just like today that is always fighting to be right and to see who's right, both-and statements can feel so wishy-washy. But in a way, Jesus affirmed both of these people in this hard conversation. And he didn't choose a side, but called both sides to something greater and better. For Jesus, winning or settling the argument doesn't need to be at the center of this hard conversation. What was at center of this conversation was seeing himself revealed. Winning was not important. Seeing himself revealed and having both sides pulled into that revelation was what was important. He affirms them. He calls them both out. He believes in hope that all things will be made right for the future. And now we see him revealing that that starts now. That future also has implications that are beginning to happen in the ministry of Jesus and through all of his people to today. That sort of hope can't be limited, Christians, to choosing one side of a hard conversation in our day. Politics, religion, whatever it is that's dividing us, we cannot play to one side. You are not Republican and Democrat. You are not Mennonite and Evangelical. You are both and. That is the model Jesus gives us. Folks, sometimes in hard conversations and moments in despair, what happens is, is we want to just hold on to the first part of that. A time is coming in which all things will be made right. We know it, we trust that. I mean, Lord, we just wait. I mean, oh, man, I feel like I'm just losing the world. I live in, the, you know, everything is changing. The church is changing. And I just give up. And, but Lord, I have this great hope that someday everything's going to be all right. And I trust you in that. If I asked for a raise of hands, there would be a few people that probably want to raise it. But I'm sure at some point in a debate or a hard conversation, we've had that kind of answer. We give into despair. 
Or maybe we, we look at the hard conversations and the injustices of our world, and they're overwhelming. You know, I, I'm a huge lover of the Chesapeake Bay. The bay is beyond repair. It is easy for me to look at that and think, man, we screwed up. I just... We, what are we going to do? Or, or maybe those of you who are farmers, and we talk about stuff like the spotted lanternfly. It's like, what good is cutting down this tree of heaven going to be? Because this thing is already out of control. See, that kind of thinking is called despair. And we do that too often in hard conversations where we give up before we even hoped in anything better. Modeling ourselves after Jesus, listen, this teaches us not only to put ourselves in the middle of hard conversations, but to affirm the strengths of both sides, to call both sides out of the debate, and to find a third and better way forward in which Jesus himself is revealed in. In that way, we can never give in to despair. Folks, we must pay attention to the both and. We must look for ways to do that. There's a lot more I want to say about that for the sake of time. We're going to move into our message now. As you flip your bulletin over, you'll see that there are some places to fill in notes. There are three notes I want us to take away this morning. Notes that help us remember that modeling ourselves after Jesus not only reminds us to engage hard conversations of our day, but to find ways to affirm the strengths of both sides, taking neither side, but also calling out both sides of the debate to begin a third and better way forward in which Jesus himself is revealed in the end. The first thing I take away this morning is that we believe that God will make all things right, both now and in the future. God will make all things right, both now and in the future. You know, when Paul talks about the transformed body in the church of Corinth, and he's writing to them, and he's telling them like Jesus was transformed, the language he uses there gives the idea of the life that we're being transformed into is a completely different life than existence as we know it. And he says, and it is our job to live into it now. We know Jesus will make all things right in the end. But we begin to address hard conversations with the reality that we want to see them also resolved now. We don't want to give in to despair. But unfortunately, sometimes, too, the other thing we do is we just focus on that second part of the passage that says, uh, and, and now it's come. And we just fight that, like, oh, my word, everything's going to be right this moment. And then we begin to kind of just turn to each other. We justify this kind of mean and prophetic voice. And I have to remember this as a person with a prophetic nature. Like, in one hand, we're carrying a bottle of water. In another one, we're carrying a bottle of gasoline. Which one are we going to use in this conversation, right? There's a reality that when we address hard conversations, some of us, some of us throw our hands up in despair, and others of us think it needs to be wrestled out right now, and it needs to be solved, and what ends up happening there is more damage than good. Jews were attracted to the truth of following God and the Samaritans as fairs. The Spirit, both were wrong, both were right. Jesus told them it was both and. In hard conversations, it is not always wishy-washy to be both and. It is important to look for the truth that Jesus can bring out of both of them. Secondly, in hard conversations, we must avoid that temptation to be defined by despair. It's important that we 
wrestle with this. It is important that we do not avoid and that we do not give up. And lastly, we must be willing to live in the tension of the kingdom. We must be willing to live in this tension that this time is coming, it has come, and it's yet to come. There's great tension in that. And that reality of the kingdom has a lot to tell us about how we engage hard conversations. There are times to work for the truth. There are times to wait for the truth. There are times in which we need to be okay with both and realities. In the resource book we've been reading, it says this. There's a new day of creation, a day of perfect unity, a day of peace, justice, forgiveness, and wholeness. And that day, through the kingdom of Jesus, now has begun. The dawn is hinting on the horizon. The first drops of the rain are falling. And those first drops, that first light, does not lead us to despair. That is not yet day. Rather, it encourages us onto the journey, onto the knowledge that day will indeed come. We approach conversations with hope and expectancy when we live in the tension of the kingdom. Now, each week at the end of the message, I've given you some practical steps of how we might apply our approach to hard conversations. And so when it comes to learning to live in the tension of the kingdom, the both and, the the already and the not yet, the now and the coming, I offer these three points. Always in hard conversations, remain hopeful. Remain hopeful. People who are transformed by the kingdom of God are people who should be endlessly hopeful. Even in the most difficult situations, our God has shown power throughout time and faithfulness to win the day. That's what the whole story of the cross is, right? We preserve, we work for the kingdom, and we never give up, not even in the hardest conversations. In hard conversations and learning to live in that tension, we ask God for insight. We ask God for eyes to see this hard conversation in a new way. For instance, this story at the woman on the well, none of us would have probably handled it in the way that Jesus handled it because we would have seen it through our lens. We ask Jesus, rather, for his lens, which will be uncomfortable. There are many times in which Jesus found himself being asked by people to choose for or against when it came to social, political, or religious issues. Jesus seemed to have a remarkable ability to perceive situations in ways that nobody previously had ever thought of. So in your hard conversations, pause and ask for insight. And last, I read this as the worship team comes forward. As followers of Jesus, we should believe in the power of prayer in hard conversations. Prayer is not merely a last-ditch effort when we cannot think of anything else to say or do. But so often that is what prayer becomes. Jesus knew how hard you know it would be. And as we looked at the first few weeks, we talked about this. He prayed for his followers. He prayed for unity for them and all that would follow them. Over 2,000 years ago, he knew hard conversations would affect his church and they wouldn't be easy. Commit to prayer as an essential part of solving hard conversations.